short story this morning to, to jumpstart us. Three boys are in a schoolyard uh, bragging about their fathers as boys often do. One of, the, one of the boys, the first boy says, you know, you'll never guess what my dad gets paid for. He scribbles a few notes on a piece of paper. He calls it a poem, and they give him $25. Second boy says, that's pretty impressive, but my dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a song, and they pay him $250 every time he does that. Third boy says, I got you both beat. My dad scribbles a few words on a piece of paper. He calls it a sermon, and it takes eight guys to stand up and collect all the money from everyone in the whole place. We don't have eight men this morning, but there's a tip jar in the back. Remember that you get what you pay for. So, so this morning, that has nothing to do with anything, right? Um, th- this, uh, this morning, um, I want us to talk about the experience of doubt in the Christian life and what, I think what part that experience might play in our own maturity and learning to walk with Jesus. So we're talking about the experience of, of doubt as being disoriented. Maybe you felt that before. A certain amount of uncertainty, <laughs> sounds weird to say, a particular amount of uncertainty about perhaps intellectual questions of who God is, um, the truth claims of Scripture, the truth claims of the Bible, of the Gospel, um, emotional doubts about God's love for you at any particular point in your life, spiritual doubts about the reality of God's forgiveness offered to you and who Jesus is. And to tee up our uh, conversation this morning as we reflect on Psalm 73, I just want you to think about this question. What do you tend to do with your doubts? When doubts seep into your mind and heart and soul, what do you tend to do with those? I want you to notice at the outset that I am lumping us all in together this morning. Uh, Theologian Avery Dulles has said that there is a secret infidel in every heart. The secret infidel in every heart, a kind of conversation that goes on between a believing self and parts of ourself that struggle with belief. Now you may not like the way that he puts it, and you may be someone sitting here this morning and thinking, you know what, I don't think this really applies to me. I, I don't know that I struggle very heavily with doubt. But I do appreciate his assumption that I do think is true, if not for you in a compelling way this morning, true for your neighbors, perhaps your kids, right, your friends and co-workers. And that is this, that doubt is a normal companion of faith. Doubt is a normal companion of faith. It may be true that some of us have seen many of our doubts overcome by the grace of God. It may be true that others of us have managed to suppress or ignore, just kind of keep them over here, the doubts that we've faced. But it's probably true that none of us have been able to rid ourselves completely of the secret infidel that Dulles talks about. And so I just want you to think about it this morning. If you haven't gone there in a long time, what is it that you do with the doubter that exists inside of you. That's what I want us to think about this morning. I want to be careful on two ends. I told our leaders this this morning. One of the things I'll be very protective of this morning is uh, what I think is the church's tendency to over-vilify doubt. On the flip side, 
I don't want to make doubt into a heroic moment <laughs> that, that, that moves you in that direction and qualifies doubt as an aspect of spiritual maturity. There's many different forms of doubt. What I do want us to think about this morning is just the role that it might play in our lives as Christian men. Uh, Jude, in his short New Testament letter, exhorts the church to have mercy on those who are doubting. You ever read that before? Jude says, as a church, we ought to have mercy on those who are doubting. How could you say that? He says it because he has seen through Scripture that God over and over and over again in his word exemplifies and demonstrates mercy on those who are doubting. And even more, he helps those in such a way often that for them to attend to their doubts actually leaves them in a better place than where they started. That's what I want us to think about this morning. What does it mean to face our doubts after the pattern of the psalmist here in Psalm 73? Let's read Psalm 73 together, see what we can make of it, and uh, and move on from there. So Psalm 73 is right there in your handout. It's a long psalm this morning. Listen to the lyrics. The psalmist writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pains until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for bringing us here, for waking us up early to consider and hear once again of your mercy for us. We pray, God, that we might find something in this psalm that speaks to us, Lord, that um, we hear your voice through the words of the psalmist. And we do pray, God, that you would help us to think well of what it means to bring 
our uncertainty and our doubt and our disorientation to you. Um, God, I pray that you would lift our heads. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, at least one goal I have this morning is I I, I hope that um, I'm able at least to start uh, chipping away at the stigma of doubt as a subject that I think we're often afraid to talk about candidly and honestly in the church. So this may not be fair, but in my own experience, it's easier, and it's not easy either way, but it's easier, for example, to talk about a whole host of other weaknesses that assail us. Weaknesses like fear, um, like a, a guilty conscience, anxiety, disappointment in life. But I don't find that that's always true of the way that we're invited to talk about doubt. So, for example, if someone says to you, you know, I'm really scared about what the MRI might reveal on Friday, that wouldn't disarm us at all, right? I mean, that someone could be scared of, of how God might be at work and, and loving them um, through a disease. That doesn't disarm us to hear something like that. We would think that's totally normal to be scared. For another example, if someone were to say, you know what, I'm really anxious about a business meeting that I have coming up at work, we might think, you know what, totally normal. But if someone comes to you and says, you know, I'm really struggling with believing the doctrine of hell or believing the Bible's account of the origins of the universe or believing that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only way to be reconciled to God. I feel like at that moment, we, I don't know that this is true for you, but a lot of us feel like people are on a slippery slope to a place they don't even know if they believe in, right? You know? And so what we typically do is, is hand them a Tim Keller book or something and say, good luck, you know? And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because we're, um, we're scared at the juxtaposition or the, um, the, uh, the reality of, of being able to say that I have doubts and still be a Christian. Maybe it's because we're scared, maybe rightfully so, because we've seen doubt take hold in other people's imaginations and it's overcome them. But I just want you to know this morning, a little rant, okay, just for a moment, that, that I think that if you read the Bible carefully over and over again, you're going to find that doubt belongs in the church. That doubters have a place in the church. Just like shame, just like anxiety, just like guilt and fear, the church is for doubters. And we as men, even around our tables, but, but beyond that, our families need to work to provide a safe place for people who are assailed by doubts to express those doubts and to work through them in the church and not outside the church. Okay. A little bit of a rant this morning. I think I get it, I think I get it fairly from Psalm 73, but here's an outline for us this morning. Number one, I want us to look from this Psalm at doubt's source. Okay. Where does doubt come from after the pattern of this psalm. Secondly, I want us to look at doubt's struggle. What should we do with it? To struggle with doubt honestly and not dishonestly, but honestly. What does that ask of us? And then finally, doubt's solution. What is it that we can ultimately hope for? What is the goal? Like what, you know, how do we, is the goal to know the answers? I mean, what is, what is the ultimate goal that the psalmist leads us to consider that we should hope for as we wrestle with our own doubts? So let's take those in order. First of all, the source of doubt. Where does it come from? 
Well, the short answer I think that we get in this psalm that is true of the Christian life is that doubt, by definition, comes from the disconnect between how the Bible frames reality and how we experience it. Okay? The chasm that opens up between how the Bible talks about reality and how we actually experience it. Now, we might call that the experience of incoherence. Incoherence. It's exactly what the psalmist is facing here. Look with me at Psalm 3. Excuse me, at verse 3. The psalmist says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw, so he's looking out on the world, and seeing that the, that the wicked prosper. The prosperity of the wicked. And then he keeps going in verses 11 through 13. He says, the wicked say, how can God know? In other words, they're boasting. Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They always increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And then verse 16, and I love this verse. He says, when I thought to understand this, when I tried to wrap my head around this, what does he say? It seemed to be a wearisome task. Like I just could not. Get to my, I couldn't get to a point of understanding that would resolve the incoherence in my own heart and soul. Now, I just want to reflect on the psalmist's experience for a moment. Now, he never uses the word doubt, but I think it's appropriate to describe his disorientation that way. What is the cause of the psalmist's doubt in verse 3? What does it say? When he sees the what? The prosperity of the wicked. In other words, what he's saying is, you know what, I have... I have lived a good life, you know, I've tried to love God and obey God and live under God's authority. And here are the wicked, and they're mocking God. And, and there is no justice that I can perceive in the life that they've lived versus the life that I have lived. Really, the, the incoherence that the psalmist feels is this question of the justice of God. Where is the justice of this sovereign God? What is the benefit of living for him or serving him? Now, I just want you to hold on to that question for a moment because I want to contrast that with a line of questioning that is more common in our culture. You know, one of the questions that comes up over and over again in our culture when it comes to God is the perceived incoherence between the goodness of God and human suffering. You ever heard that before? Like, how could a good God allow suffering on the scale that he allows it? The psalmist is struggling with the question of how could a just God allow prosperity? We wrestle with the question of how could a good God allow suffering? Now those questions are related, but they're a little bit different. And the point I want you to see here is that our cultural moment, and this was true for the psalmist, but our own cultural moment shapes the kinds of questions with which we struggle. So let me give you another example. Then I want to show you why this is important. Westerners, which includes us, right, in the West, the modern West, we tend to be offended naturally. Now, that may be true of you today, but at some point, this offends us by the biblical doctrine of original sin. So maybe you know what that that is. The, The doctrine of original sin is that Adam, the first man, made a choice for you a long time ago that you had no say in. And his choice was imputed to you so that you deserve the penalty for someone else's choice. Now, if I just said that to you, you'd never, that sounds crazy. Because we live in a culture that is highly individualistic that says, you know what, moral choice and justice should only be appropriated to the person who in good, 
and, and, a, and with a well, you know, with a well-formed mind, can make such a choice. When I was in seminary, though, one of my professors, who was a former missionary in Asia for almost 20 years, said that when he taught in Asia on the biblical doctrine of original sin, there were no hang-ups at all, ever. There were no questions. He said in the contact, context of a culture that's much more communally oriented, one that va- values hierarchy, the fact that one appointed person could make a decision that was then imputed to other people in his clan or you know, group or race seemed to fit just fine with their concept of justice. He said where they really got hung up was the whole concept of free grace and forgiveness. That someone, that someone would not suffer, that, that God could just offer forgiveness and grace without penalty freely. He said, Chad, what's your point? My point is this, okay? The claims of the gospel, hear me, the claims of the gospel always introduce disorientation and doubt into the culture in which they are addressed, not merely our own. The claims of the gospel, because they are radically different from the claims of a fallen world, will always introduce disorientation into the culture in which they address, not merely our own. I say that just because I know that in the modern world, we tend to value skepticism, and that becomes almost a virtue, and I get that. But Descartes and Darwin, whoever you want to champion, Freud, modern science, did not introduce the concept of doubt into religious life. The gospel did. The gospel in a fallen world always introduces disorientation into the culture in which it challenges. That's where doubt comes from. It's always going to come from how you think about reality, with, um, uh, how, you, how we frame reality, the difference between how we think about reality or experience it with how the gospel frames it. That gap will be present for us. And so doubt is common in, in, the, in every culture, not just ours, but in our experience of living in a fallen world. Okay? The psalmist is dealing with it here in Psalm 73. Now, what do we do with it? Okay, what do we do with our doubts? So before I get to the passage, I want to I do this kind of, I know this is heady early this morning, right? So um, I, I just want to give you um, uh, one recommendation that, that Tim Keller makes. And this really does help me, and it may not help all of you, right? What, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York that deals with skepticism all the time, right? Um, and one of the things he tells people over and over is that In order to deal with doubt honestly, you have to learn to doubt your own doubts. Okay? I'm not trying to play a trick on you here. I know. And so doubt your own doubts. Now, what does he mean by that? So so Keller makes the point that every doubt that we have, we are only able to doubt whatever that thing is by standing on another belief. Does that make sense? You have to stand on some belief to afford yourself the perspective to doubt something else. So, for example, let's take the psalmist in Psalm 73. The psalmist is beginning to doubt the justice of God because he doesn't see that justice appropriately applied in a visible way to his life right now. Is, can he doubt that, though? Isn't it fair for him? Does the gospel suggest that maybe God doesn't operate that way? Maybe the psalmist has to come to learn to doubt that God's justice does get applied in the here and now immediately. Does that make sense? Let me give you another one for example. 
Um, uh, your experience in life, you know someone who is a deeply devout believer, Christian, lover of God, who has to bear immense suffering. And you can't see any good that comes out of it. You, there, you, there, you, can't, uh, you can't see any good, any good, any redemptive good that has come out of their suffering. And so that throws you. What is the belief that under, undergirds that? The belief there is that if God is to allow suffering, then good has to come out of it, and that good should be visible to you. But, but isn't it true? Isn't it true correspondingly that if we're willing to admit that God is infinitely just and infinitely kind and infinitely wise, that he might have reasons for suffering that a finite mind can't envision. He might have reasons and motives that we can't even know at this point. Does that make sense? We begin to doubt our own doubts. That's what Keller says. He goes, you know, there's some talk therapy for you here. You You can look under your doubts at the beliefs that you hold and begin to actually apply doubt to those beliefs with the framework of the gospel. Now, having said that, the psalmist doesn't do that in Psalm 73. What does the psalmist do? Where does he go? Where does he go to begin to work out his doubts? Into the sanctuary, to church. I think that's, I I just don't want you to miss that this morning. (laughs) That in order to go process his doubt, he goes to the means of grace. He goes into the sanctuary to worship a God who he believed can handle his doubts. He goes to word and sacrament. He goes to the fellowship of God's people who can help bear the burden of his doubts. And I want to say that to come back to the point that I made earlier, that the church, the sanctuary, is the place, or should be the place for doubters to come, to get to know God and to process the incoherence that they feel in their own lives. In the Gospel of Mark, you may know the story. There is a man that comes to Jesus. And the man just has, he comes up to him out of mercy. His son is really sick, and he wants Jesus to heal his boy. Now, you should know this man doesn't know Jesus well, and in fact, the disciples don't know him that well at this point. They don't, like, he's told them things, but, like, it's, it's not really sinking in for them, so much less this man. <laughs> so to this man, Jesus is a rabbi, and he's a wonder worker of some sort. You know, he's got these claims, but he doesn't know, and he just wants Jesus to come and heal his son. And so he brings his sick son to Jesus. And says, can you do anything for him? Will you have compassion and mercy on him? And Jesus says, can I do something? It's almost like rhetorically like, can I? Of course I can, right? And he says, uh, he says you just need to believe. You know what the man says, Mark 9, 36? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. That is the Bible making provision for the secret infidel in every heart. That there is a part of us that deeply believes and wants to believe and another part of us that needs help with our unbelief. And that's what I'm saying to you this morning is that the Psalms make provision for you to go to Jesus Christ and to ask him for help with your unbelief. And let me just say as someone who has struggled, has struggled with doubt um, in pretty uh, hard ways earlier in life, and still, I mean, I, th- I still think it's there for me, right? That when I, I've found in my own life, when I am willing to face those honestly and not suppress them or pretend that they're not there, that God often brings me out on the other side of that to a new place of reorder from the disorder. 
a new place of mystery and wonder and awe that I would have never anticipated if I had just suppressed what I was thinking and feeling. There is, God can use that. So when, Jesus, when he says, help me with my unbelief, it's not just help me to believe, but take me, Jesus, to the place that you want me to be, that only your hand can lead me into. Doubt can be an experience of deep maturity for you. And I would say this too, that our neighbors and our children, right, need to see that modeled in us so that they begin to believe that really doubt is, that doubt does belong in the sanctuary. It does belong on a Tuesday morning here in a men's Bible study. That that Jesus can handle us coming to him with this particular aspect of our experience, the incoherence that we feel. Okay, so what's the, what's the end game in the psalm? Let's look at that just for a moment. He goes to the sanctuary. He struggles there. Learn to doubt your doubts, if that made sense to you at all. If not, go to church. Okay, that's the really main point there. What is the solution to doubt? Okay. Well, the solution, if you look at the psalm and the end verses, it is true that as the psalmist goes into the sanctuary, he really does gain clarity, right? Like he, he begins to see that, that his claim that the wicked are always at ease, that they always prosper, is not true forever, right? So he gains clarity to his question a little bit to the justice of God. But more than clarity, and this is what I want you to see, what the psalmist gains from the sanctuary is a deeper confidence and satisfaction in God himself. So let's look at verses 25 through 26 just as kind of as sample verses to summarize the whole last part of the psalm. In verses 25 through 26, the psalmist says this. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Okay, so I want to um, make a point. Look up with me just for a moment and say this, and I think this is true of me, it may be true of you, that often what we reach for in our struggle against doubt is more and more self-confidence. So in our struggle, we'll say things like this, if I only had more answers, if God would only make things more clear to me, if only Christianity or the gospel were more reasonable. And what I want you to see is that in all these complaints are disguised pleas for more self-confidence. There's a part of us that wants to be God. What we ultimately want is to see as God sees and to know as God knows. But notice here in verse 25 and 26, the psalmist doesn't say, look, my strength in my heart may fail, but Lord, if you would really keep them from failing, that would be good. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, my strength in my heart may fail, but Lord, you are the strength in my heart and my portion forever. What I want you to see there is what he's reaching for in his struggle is not ultimately more strength not to fail. What he's reaching for is the God who is there at the end of his strength. The God who is there at the end of his own failure. He is reaching for the one in whom he must trust despite his inability to neatly resolve all the incoherencies in his own mind and heart. That is the pattern of the whole Bible, men. Think about it with me. Take Abraham for a moment. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Abraham, God says, go to this city that you don't even know exists. It's not on your map anywhere. When you get there, I'm going to wait until you're too old to have kids, and then I'm going to make you 
the great, 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 great grandfather of me. Right? Don't worry about how that's going to work itself out. Why don't you just start going? Do you think, do you think Abraham lived with any incoherence? Think about Noah for a moment. Noah, I want you to build a boat as big as a city in the middle of a desert. No matter the fact that you live in a desert and you've probably never heard the word boat before in your life. Go build the boat. Do you think Noah in obeying God lived with any incoherence? Joshua, I want you to take this army and I want you to march around the most heavily fortified fortress in the ancient world, Jericho, and I want you to do so by taking your little kazoos, your little musical instruments, <laughs> and I want you to blow those seven times, and then the, the city's just going to collapse in front of you, and I, you'll enjoy telling your generals about that plan, right? Samuel, I want you to go to this scrawny shepherd boy, and I want you to make him the king of Israel, and I know the Philistines are particularly sort of pressing down on you right now, and, and they had probably the greatest warrior of all time in Goliath, you know, but, but this little boy is going to conquer him with his slingshot. Go anoint him as the king. And then, of course, you know the climax of God's plan, right? The moment that history has been building for, towards, what's it going to be? What has Israel been longing for? What has the world been waiting for? Something, I'm sure, that really makes sense. Something that will erase all of our doubts and give us the proof that we need of the wisdom of God. God will finally give us the ironclad reply we've wanted. What does he give us? He gives us the crucifixion. In the wisdom of God, he gives us a Jewish peasant strung out as a criminal on a cross. And he says, this is my plan. This is the plan. That's what prompted Apostle Paul to write in his first letter to the Corinthians. He writes, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And what Paul is saying there, and what the whole Bible gives testimony to, is that the gospel will always have an inherent absurdity to it that cannot be dressed up to look like wisdom to us. And yet at the end of the day, faith is the settled confidence that in the seemingly absurd the genius of God is present. And that's where the psalmist lands. He eventually doesn't land on full coherence, but he lands on full confidence. Confidence in the God who gives us not all the answers to our questions, but better yet, who gives us his very self. The psalmist gets a picture of this. We get a fuller one in the incarnation. Who gives us himself to be our portion forever. I mean, I want you to know that doubt can help propel you on your journey I know it's not safe all the time, but it really can help that God makes provision for doubt in the gospel and that facing your doubts is better than ignoring or suppressing them. And God has given you permission to come to him and to wrestle with those in his presence. Permission to do that with his people. To say, I believe, Lord, will you help my unbelief? I believe, help my unbelief. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the Bible. We um, thank you, God, for your word to us and um, the way that your word perhaps diagnoses and then reorders our lives. And we pray that that would happen. We pray, God, that you would use the example here of Asaph in Psalm 73, the example of his doubt, of his feet slipping, almost slipping, 
the example of him coming to the end of himself and having to say it's a wearisome task to understand the incoherence that I face. His example of going to the sanctuary of God and um, regaining and reordering trust in you, that you would use that for our own lives and our own souls this morning. I pray for these men. I pray, God, that you would mature them, you would grow them, you would convince them once again of your love for them. In Christ's name, amen.